A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point would be through chapter 25 in Pierce Brown's Dark Age. It's the first part of the... I guess I guess it's the first half of the second part. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's how, how I would say it. Or first third. First half of the... First part of the second part <laughs> is what I initially started saying. But uh, first few chapters of the second part of the book. So... With that, uh, let's let's get going. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. This week in the intoxicating weekly book club, we learned that Daxo Telemannus has the same taste in, sa- in spaceships as Jeff Bezos. <laughs> and Virginia likes a nightly bourbon just like we do. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's true, too. So... <laughs> Today is our fourth episode covering Dark Age by Pierce Brown, and we are going to tackle, as PJ so eloquently put in the intro, tackle chapters 18 through 25. First, very eloquent, thank you. Yeah, very eloquent. First, though, <laughs> let's talk about what we're drinking. What are you having on this magnificent evening? Oh, I, I tried something new today. Ooh. It is called a port lemonade. So it is an ounce and a half of port, ruby port specifically. Um, ounce and a half of vodka, three ounces of lemon juice, and three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup shaken and served over ice. I did not have enough lemon to add a lemon wedge like I intended to. So I just, it's, the glass is naked, but I would have put a lemon wedge on it. You friggin' leave it in glass it's, naked. Who are you? It's really good, man. It sounds ridiculously it's really, really tasty. Good. Um, I think I'd go a little bit more simple syrup next time because it's a, it's pretty tart. It's delicious. It's really, really tasty. But following that up, I've got Tower Cloud from Equilibrium Brewing Company out of Middletown, New York. It is a Pilsner. It's 5.5%. It drinks almost like an Imperial Pilsner, though. Like, it's not super, super light like a lot of Pilsners are. Um, it's got a little bit of, little bit of heft to it in the uh, body department so i don't know it's delicious it's really good so hmm. two high notes for my drinks tonight yeah wow sounds both those sound delicious mm-hmm. what have you got i went a little bit simple today i had originally planned to drink something that a couple of friends had brought me on their trip recently but i decided that i'm going to hold that for next week i've got a i've got a plan that'll require a couple more ingredients in order to pull off what i want to to show that off so tonight what i'm having is a tim ferris margarita (laughs) this is straight out of the four hour body in terms of what he considers acceptable slow carb uh drinks whatever it's just a really easy simple thing to have um kind of post-workout if you don't want to drink your calories so uh all it is two ounces of tequila one ounce lime juice freshly squeezed uh some ice and i add lime spindrift to top spindrift is just a um carbonated water but they add a little bit of lime to it so So pretty straightforward it's more like a 
te- tequila spritzer, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. Because there's no sugar. Right. Lime technically is sugar. It, okay. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, right. Right. It is a very little bit, but yeah. It, it, is, it is missing the, the simple syrup that would normally go into a margarita. Correct. You you definitely can add simple syrup. I just chose not to. And actually, I think that the regular um, list does include simple syrup. Okay. Uh, but I decided against that because I wanted something a little bit more refreshing. And it is. It is delicious. It is refreshing. Um, PJ, if you had guess, if I'm drinking a weird margarita, what am I following it up with? If you just had to shoot in the dark. Bush light. Ooh, that wasn't bad. It's like the the um, the beach party equivalent of a bush light, which is... Is it like a Corona seltzer or something? Eh, it's a White Claw, but, you know, it's close Okay, enough. fair enough. <laughs> just a natural lime White Claw to follow that. <laughs> I just had a bunch left over in the fridge from the weekend, so I was like, you know what? Uh, I, don't, I didn't want See, to drink... Instead of the Spindrift, I would, have put the, I would have put the lime White Claw in there. I considered it for a second. Like, I actually stared at it, and I was like, huh, I could do that. And then I was like, that might be a little bit too much. And so I was like, you know what? I'll just drink that as my follow-up. It was that, like, the only other beer that I had in my fridge was an Imperial IPA, like a 9%er that was just going to kick my ass. And I was like, not tonight. Maybe maybe on Thursday. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So that's that's what I'm drinking tonight. I had a shot of tequila right before the show. Yeah. Oh, speaking of that, we've got we've got a week of recording ahead of us. Yeah, we do. We've got this episode, which we're doing Monday. We're recording a Patreon show on Wednesday, and then we're recording our normal our normal episode time recording on Thursday. So, yep, hell week a little bit. <laughs> we're calling it a hell week of sorts, but it should be really really great for those of you who are members of our Patreon or are looking to join this month on PJ Symposium. What are we covering? Wrath of Man, the Guy Ritchie film. Yeah, 2021. Most recent Guy, Guy Ritchie film? Yep, yep, most recent one. Okay. He released The Gentleman technically in 2019, 2020. It was in December, so kind of hangover between the two. And then uh, Wrath of Man came out in 2021. So Jason Statham kind of heist flick, sort of? I haven't watched it yet. That's what I have to do tomorrow, <laughs> which is Tuesday, right. and we're going to talk about it on Wednesday. So I am also going to watch it again tomorrow. <laughs> so take notes this time. <laughs> but, uh, but uh that's a little bit different format we've actually got another buddy joining us uh so we'll have have a little threesome on air mm-hmm. be a good time <laughs> little threesome action uh <laughs> <laughs> jesus all right so yeah that that's gonna be great and then obviously we've got our regular episodes coming up and um we have discussed an additional book that we'll be covering that we've already covered mm-hmm. actually that we'll be releasing on the patreon more on that to come of course and uh with that I'd like to get into last week's predictions, PJ, but there really isn't one to talk about, uh, except for a very minor one here. Um, So what happens to Lyria was addressed in a way, uh, and you said... I said we'll see an epilogue for her, but not a POV. So... That's still true. It could be. So we're gonna, we're gonna moment. we're gonna hang on to that one, but I wanted to mention right. it because I wanted to make sure that it was still in the forefront of people's heads where where we're at with kind of that prediction. But then the only other one that really has any kind of relevance is uh, what's the structure of the next part POV timeline and location changes? And you said adding point of views, small time jump for Darrow and Lysander, multiple locations slash planets. Yes. Um, 
it is a small time jump from where we were listening or where we were uh, left off with Darrow and Lysander, but they were not featured in this part of the book. Um, and we did add POVs and they are on multiple, multiple planets. Yeah. I'd like to add just a small clarification to your multiple locations, planets comment. Um, when you were doing it in the episode, you were, you specifically said that like the battle would leave Mercury. Uh, Oh, I did. I did say that, but I mean, we don't know. It didn't, Right. So <laughs> what I'm going to say is that I'm just going to give you the drink for adding POVs because I think that that's okay. right and well enough and, and good. Um, and the rest of it has yet to be answered, you know, within reason, okay. I think. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm cool with that. Simple enough. That's taken care of. Mm-hmm. So with that, let's get into the chapters. So I, I want to open up here talking about the quote that kicks off this chapter because I think it's really fantastic. Uh, so part two of the book is called craft and it leads off with a quote from Julius Caesar here. It is easier to find men who will volunteer to die than those who are willing to endure pain and patience. I find this quote an interesting one right off the bat with the title craft it pointing kind of directly at something PJ. Do you know what that something is? Arts and crafts. I swear to God I should just why do we even create notes? I should just give you a crayon and you could take pictures of whatever you draw. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> or spacecraft? Like uh, it, I feel like there's a is it Starcraft? State statecraft. St- statecraft, PJ. It would be hmm. it would be statecraft cuz this is all about I, politics. I don't I don't see how that's uh, and, and, craft, and crafting states between Virginia craft mac and cheese. And Ephraim. Okay. Uh um moving on. Uh chapter 18. <laughs> <laughs> Virginia sovereign (laughs) and I am so excited that we in this book the first time that I popped it open and I definitely want to get your feelings I was so fucking pumped to be all of a sudden in Virginia's heads my eyes just Mm -hmm. my eyes just lit up and I was like no fucking way this is so perfect what what were your initial thoughts I I loved it I really loved the idea of it I think that her point of view, especially in this book, being separated from Darrow for the most part, is incredibly important to have because there's so many decisions that she's going to be making that affect and ripple out through like what Darrow's doing right now on the other side of the galaxy, or not galaxy, other side of the solar system. So having having that high-level view on what's going on and above and beyond high level view of the political like machine, the actual leader of it, I think is super, super nice to have. So I'm excited. And it's, and it's Virginia, you know, like horsey girl. We love horsey girl. <laughs> we, we definitely do love horsey girl. And I, I totally agree with you. I love the sort of sharp edge and like mind her mind right off the bat. It's so, well orchestrated and it's so funny because she's so snide on the inside and you can kind of imagine Mm -hmm. that because she is the smartest person in the room and i think what's so interesting about that is you kind of get flashes of the way that nero was to other people and the way that the jackal was to other people you know like and that's actually a part of her inner monologue in a way i'm not saying she's evil or maniacal but you can see kind of the family um, representation there there are roots exactly Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't know if I'd go as far as saying that like having her as a point of view would be required to tell the story properly, 
but yeah. it's definitely important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also can't say enough about the very first like two lines of this chapter. I stare half-blinded into a firing squad of fly-eyed cameras out of the viewport behind me. Battle stations and ships of war float beyond the upper atmosphere of Luna. I love the idea of cameras shooting, you know, and it's it's obvious. But after transitioning from actual war to the the war of politics is just so great. And that opening yeah. line sets that tone so well. Yeah, it does. Sets it very, very well. And and then to follow that up, the 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 speech that she gives is truly fucking brilliant. It's it's fantastic prose. It does a great job of not only catching us up on the public perception surrounding Darrow from the entirety of Iron Gold and kind of giving a, a sort of recap back to society, as well as the events that have happened since that we've we've experienced in the first part of this book. But it also backs him up and supports him as a leader. You know, we've we've previously discussed and, and said that Darrow's been fairly neglectful of his immediate family in some rights and ways to satiate the Reaper's need to ensure society's survival. And here Mustang is backing him up a hundred percent, regardless of whether mm-hmm. or not he's there directly for her in the same way that she might need. She is there for him because she understands that this, this is for survival. Right. Entirely. Yeah. I, I think another interesting point to bring up with this speech this is the first, like, we're getting, in in Mustang's head, the first part of her point of view is her giving this speech, other than, like, the one-page preface, pre-preface, I guess, um, of this book. Uh, the first Red Rising, the very pre- preface of that book, is Nero's speech to the Golds, mm-hmm. where Darrow's in the army, or in the... Institute. I don't know. Yeah. Is it the, ins- yeah, it's, is it post or is it pre, like pre-institute or is it post-institute? I forget exactly, I but yeah. But like he's giving a speech and that's mm-hmm. the first we see of the man. And this, other than like that one little chunk at the beginning of this book, this is the first we see of her point of view. And uh, I think that's a, the connections that we made like just now about sort of some similarities that we see in her. I think it's a, it's a fun tie-in yeah i i think actually it's a great point to point out that both of them have speeches in the prefaces you know and i think that that is an interesting parallel that i didn't i didn't consider or think of but they are both i mean states people you know they're they're both respectively various heads and even in the middle of of her speech and her internal monologue she sort of admonishes him for his decisions to execute the girl and in the place of his statue is one of the girl that he executed now and there, there are all of these like tiny things that are just so brilliant from virginia's perspective and i i totally agree with you i love that they both have they both come from that kind of like stately i don't know perspective or background it's it's wonderful right great point Mm-hmm. This the speech also gives us a really full view of the Senate as it stands and where they sit on the negotiations for the upcoming vote that she is proposing here and it really begins to show the tower of cards the dancer has built perhaps crumbling on after this or because of the speech's weight and also the weight of Darrow's actions. What what do you make of the sort of political house of cards that the dancers created? Oh man, it's going to fuck him. <laughs> like i obviously there are there's going to be 
collateral damage to when when that when that house of cards falls. But I think it's mostly going to be him. He's going to be the one that gets swallowed up by it. So I don't know. Fair. I don't know what to think of it entirely, but he's going to get he's going to screw himself. I think. What'd you make but of the? Oh, go ahead. Beyond beyond that, the speech itself. Um, it, it, there's so much weight to it, like you said, and I know there's like cameras and stuff, but when I imagined it, like when I, when, when, when I was trying to like imagine what it was like, I imagined almost like the, uh, what's it called? DC in front of like just a giant fucking speech in DC. Oh, like state of the union. Well, or uh, not the state of the union on the the what's in front of the lincoln memorial There's uh the reflection pool yeah the reflecting pool the well i mean the what's Washington- that area called oh um the oh god the um my brain like wanted to say palisade specific- but it's not that it's the it has a specific name and i know that that's what i'm thinking of but Regardless, I'm thinking of a wide open plaza. Is it the a shit ton of people? Yeah. No, not the not the plaza. National um, Mall called the National Mall. Mall. Yep. Mall. The National yep. Mall. Yep. yep. So I'm thinking of the National Mall filled with people, mm-hmm. and her giving this like really really impassioned speech, and it's just a fucking room, and there's a bunch of cameras and like the the senators I think. Yeah, and reporters I think like some senators yeah. and reporters. Yep. Yeah, and like half of them are like cheering and super super supportive, and half of them are just like staring. Mm-hmm. You know? I don't. Know. I I feel like that would be anticlimactic for her, even though it it was broadcast to tons and tons and tons of people, millions, if not billions. But it's just it's just in a room. Yeah. I, I think that she says something along the lines shortly after the the like I speech is that there's actually eight billion people watching her at that point. So that's a, that's a huge amount of people. But also at the same time, by the time she ends the speech, she she goes off and basically says, you know, that like everyone will slowly revert to normal, you know, maybe impassioned temporarily. But the, the goal here was to was to leave an indelible mark more in the senators as much as the people. And I think that it's all very cleverly and well, well well positioned from pierce's part because it's so e- like it's so easy to like fall and slip back in those habits and you know take take this moment of of dire passion and desire and need and then people just slip back into their daily lives without you know taking action to a certain degree mm-hmm. easy to get sucked into that social media feed you know right exactly but I'm, I'm totally with you i think that it's brilliant and that you would assume that it is in front of this giant crowd uh, atop them all and you'd hope that that would be kind of the way that this this gathering is but she's literally pounding her fist into the podium yeah right like it it, it just feels so grandiose and it is i mean all told like that's the way these features are going to be kind of going forward for you know yeah that's true We've we've kind of already talked a little bit about this, but there, there's a ton of modern political commentary tucked in here where you can see that Pierce was kind of seething from what I imagine was his opinion of the administration over the time frame time period. Uh, and also specifically the, the bits of the speech that felt very directly inspired by Churchill that we'll get into a little bit more later. 
I it's it's worth noting, I think, here for the people who don't know, of course, that Pierce did start as a political consultant manager on campaigns while he was writing before quitting that. I think in particular, this little quote here called out to me as well as sort of some of that anguish that he has about modern day politics. We have let our union erode to tribalism. We hoard our wealth. We abandon our votes for violence. We summon tantrums instead of gritting our teeth in common purpose. And I think that that like does really great justice not only for the the current political climate, but also for what Virginia needs out of the people, the sort of ire against the society that they used to have, as opposed to sort of the the decade of, I don't know, decade of, I mean, conflict that they've had. But, mm-hmm. you know, feels like some people at the very least are potentially slipping back into comfort. Right. Or at least stagnation. Yeah. Especially when we get to the silvers and coppers later. But mm-hmm. I, I think your point about him being a political con- consultant before this i didn't know that until until just now it makes total fucking sense like yeah i hit he writes it so well and his it just the politics in general are so so specifically well written mm-hmm. it's captivating and realistic at the same time which seems like it'd be really tough to pull off oh for sure i i i cannot agree more i think that this is one of the Oh, wow. This is one of the better parts of this um, secondary series that he really kind of gets to dive into a lot more with, I mean, with Virginia, with Ephraim, with Lyria is sort of the political conversations around refugees and the political conversations of how do you deal with the post of a revolution. And I think that that's a a fantastic entry point, which is great. Mm -hmm. And he gets to kind of comment on that and talk about it. So it's good. Right. And... With that, the railgun blast of the twins of South Pacifica launching supplies across space, we end the chapter. I want to bring up a little thing here about the twins. They're they're named after Holiday and Trig, but Holiday right. and Trig aren't twins, according to the books. So, see, we talked about this. We talked about this because I thought they were. This is where... If you remember correctly, and I, this is why I want to bring it up here, if you if you remember the uh, conversation that we had with Aaron and Ben, they also thought, or I think Aaron also thought that they were twins, and I think it's mm-hmm. also because of this in Dark Age that it, like, re-triggers in everyone's head and makes you kind of, like, think that they are twins. But I, I actually well, had I... a little squad of Discord folks go peel through... Uh, the <laughs> morning star for me just to confirm my own my own suspicions and it is in fact that uh, trig is a younger brother right yeah i don't know why because i hadn't read this book at that point and i remember right. them being like introduced as twins and then i don't know didn't put much thought behind it beyond that totally i just it's it's interesting but i mean still they're they're still siblings right siblings of south pacifica doesn't quite have the ring of the twins of the south pacifica as a pair of rail guns so well i maybe the rail guns themselves are the twins and they're named after the siblings right right that's likely likely the case something to that effect probably identical rail guns <clears throat> yes yeah without a doubt i love the sort of mental Almost image like, like a year younger than the other I love the mental image that I get of the railguns firing, though, like just the idea of like these giant cannons pointing up at the sky and launching all of these supplies across space is just a fantastic visual image. Man, they've got to be so well packaged. (laughs) (laughs) 
Real guns are so violent. Well, it's so much, so much acceleration. I don't know. I they'd have to be entirely in case. No, man, man, they railgun rounds get very, very hot too. Very, very hot. So it'd have to be some sort of like really thick pieces of metal encasing whatever the, the supplies are with a decent amount of like thermal shielding on the inside. Yeah, right. In order to make it work. Yeah. I just want to see that. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be fun. I'm I'm with you. I'm with you on that. With that, we get into chapter 19, Virginia Stiletto. I really lo- enjoy the way that like Virginia describes Holiday here for us. It's so different because we've seen Holiday from Ephraim's perspective. We've seen Holiday from Lyria's perspective. We've seen Holiday from Darrow's perspective. Uh, and now we add Virginia to that mix, right? And the description is is just a little bit different. And I think that that's such a nice touch on his part to kind of use and, and think about the way that Virginia would think about people. And for her, she she adores Holiday and loves her in a number of ways, but she also thinks of her as an instrument because that's her utility as a scalpel to get at the heart of what needs to be done. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's a great way to describe her. Even when she's not acting on Darrow's behalf or really not taking direct orders, her actions and decisions are really, really careful. And I don't know, her reputation and the Howler's reputation in general are, they bring weight to whatever scenario they're in, whatever situation they're in. And she wields it like a weapon really, really effectively. Like think about when she walked into that bar to meet Ephraim early on in Iron Gold. Like she commanded that room instantly. Mm -hmm. And yes, the wolf cloak had something to do with it, but she's imposing, she's confident. And she she does it on purpose. And even without that, like her reputation precedes her in a number of ways, right? Like Roan T. Mm-hmm. Flavinius is the only one. Lysander's little little dog is the only one who is more notable than she is, and then Trig was, as far as Greys go. So that's like that's those are high marks before she was even a howler. And you throw all of that together and you get the description from everyone. Lyria not really fully understanding, understanding the wolf cloak, but not knowing the rest. Um, Like you said, Ephraim in that scene in the bar, kind of that intimidation that rolls off the shoulder. All of those different moments are are just so, so fantastic as far as building up this, this sort of, I don't know, mythical warrior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even throughout the section, I, I didn't I didn't write this down anywhere, but like the fact that she like uses a finger gun and like snipes at someone at some point, like there's just so many different ah, delicious moments with with Holiday that I love. Speaking speaking of this, though, just because it's popping to my head, Darrow has collected some of the like most notable instances of every single color, basically. Right. Yeah. Pretty not much. every single one, but a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, like there's no whites really but no whites uh not really any super like <clears throat> notorious pinks theodora Theod- she is a rose but she it's not like her name brings any necessary weight like like um oh what's the orange that he's got harnassus now harnassus or or holiday or I guess he's like the most famous red at oh, this point. Orion. You know, there's, there's a <laughs> Orion, the yeah. blue, yeah. Call away as well. Yep. Yeah. It, it just, it feels like he is sort of creating, not creating, but collecting 
collecting the the powerful colors. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that even you use that word because that was one that was used by Darrow to describe Octavia and how she collected people back in Golden Sun. Yeah, (laughs) I didn't think about that. (laughs) But that's it's I mean, it's apt and it it totally makes sense. And in, in the same way, I think that Virginia does collect people in the same kind of capacity and you know who'd she learn that from there's you know not not to i think that virginia likely places a higher value on people than octavia does of course based on her you know moral standing but in in a very similar way kind of kind of seems that way right i love the explanation in the namesake of this chapter as well selenius's stiletto i think that this concept is super important is largely also the same reason that darrow's never gone so far as to seize power as it would kind of be this act of tyranny and it was the same sort of stiletto that selenius was walking on i i think this is a nice little thing to track how they've how they're going to pull off the, the political machinations over kind of the rest of the book or kind of setting it up to appear as though they've got to walk this very thin line mm-hmm. you know the the idea of threading the needle between like two bad outcomes or two like straight up catastrophic outcomes makes for some really, really interesting storytelling. So I'm excited for that, that sort of idea, I guess. Beyond that, though, I think this is kind of a step up in stakes between like where they're at and and Selenius. Because Selenius was like the one that conquered Earth, right? Effectively. <laughs> Yeah, the society was it mostly beyond, out does in the go beyond stars. That? So the only the only planet that he really had to fight against was Earth because the stars were all a part of the society. So okay, but uh, so, your point stands, I think. Yeah, like they're they're trying to unify the solar. They're trying to fight the solar system, which is way way bigger scale. Yeah, obviously, totally. Totally. I, I love I love that comparison. And I think that you bring up a really great point thinking about the sort of change. And I, I love the fact that Holiday and Virginia are obviously talking about this right now and sort of the the kind of joke between the two of them when like, oh, well, when the sovereign hands you a book, you definitely read it. When when Virginia hands you a book, you read it. And the fact that they also acknowledge that, yeah, while I don't agree with Selenius on a number of things, I can still take his wisdom and knowledge and apply it to you know, my own situation. I, I find both of those things uh, very kind of admirable between our pair of characters. Yeah. I think that's an important trait to have mm-hmm. to look at the, look at the horrible, horrible people in the past and be able to approach it with, with, without the emotion blinding you of what they actually accomplished mm-hmm. and be able to take, take their, their process and apply it towards something good. I think that's an incredibly important thing to learn to do. You can condemn them for what they've done and how they wielded that that knowledge and that power, but to be able to take it and use it for something good, I think is almost more important than ignoring it. Totally. Yeah. I'm all over that with you and i think that that is it's just such a it's such a strong point i mean we're going to talk a little bit more about meditations in a second here but marcus aurelius was a oh <laughs> leave me alone uh marcus aurelius like and and a number of of other other folks within the political and uh the the sphere of the time in in stoicism in just about every single actual uh, philosophical movement we're for the most part not great people and so it it shouldn't come as a 
I, I guess I'll just bounce back to my Marcus Aurelius comparison. So Marcus Aurelius was notable for uh, at the time before Christianity was what it was. He went on a crusade against Christianity and was was purging and killed hundreds of thousands, millions of Christians um, in in a purge. And then also like struck out against Gaul and was obviously a conqueror in the first place. And so there are all of those different connotations. But that's not to say that there isn't a bevy of things that can be learned from what he did, what he chose, and how he behaved. The same could be said for, you know, Attila the Hun and sort of the way that he approaches tactics or Sun Tzu in general. You know, there there are a lot of there are a lot of people who have questionable paths that are at the very least occasionally worth remarking upon. Mm-hmm. Speaking of one such yeah. individual, <laughs> uh, I, I, did, did you have another thought? I didn't mean to cut you off. Nope. Nope. Okay, we're going to talk about it more, so it's not like it's going away. Um, yeah, I figured. <laughs> in the argument with Dancer, I, I found it particularly poignant and to like call out that he called out who inspired the the speech of the last chapter, and that is of Churchill, and it fits into exactly what I was just saying. In in many ways, it shares a lot of the same rhetorical devices that Churchill applied and used over his career, but it reminds me most of the "We Shall Fight on the Beaches" speech. Uh, which was just post Dunkirk and pre sort of the turning of the war. It's his like turn of the war speech. And wow. I mean, just what a, I, I, I actually reread it a uh, couple of like a day ago or so, but when I was doing some of the notes here and I was, I was kind of fascinated by the, the comparisons between comparisons between the two. So I really, really appreciated yeah. him obviously calling that out. And then Virginia, of course, being like, uh, if it's been done before, why would I redo it? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think this is this is another great example then of uh, Piercy Boy's political background and uh, how it creates really a cool cool dynamic when it's paired with his really really top notch writing. So that's cool. That's cool to see. Mm-hmm. But in this little section, there is a quote. That says, you and I both know Darrow and the Reaper are two different things entirely from Dancer to Mustang. Was that a part? Was that a part that like, was that something that you remembered and like just kind of kept from me when we were talking about this? Or did it kind of fall through the memory cracks when we were discussing the Darrow versus the Reaper and if they're two, two different entities? Or do you think it doesn't really play into into it at all? So I, what I would say, PJ, here is that I, this was actually explicit in the very beginning of Iron Gold. So I think it's the chapter after the fantasy in which Darrow and um, Dancer go on the walk through the forest. And he kind of he brings it up and broaches that that subject with Darrow and kind of points that there points to the fact that there are two different excuse the the shitty reference but there are two different wolves inside of him um (laughs) (laughs) fuck uh but like (laughs) in all actuality it's especially funny because he's a howler so that's an even better joke but uh the this was brought up by dancer back in iron gold and now he's just kind of reiterating it in case we forgot i think more than anything else this is just a point back to that to make us think about it and make us kind of remember it and i think that I did not remember that he he is so explicit again here when I was thinking back on it. But we got we we provided in Iron Gold. I think we provided so much more detail and depth and thought as to why we we believe or kind of agreed with Dancer 
mm-hmm. without actually pointing out that we were agreeing with Dancer. No, I pointed out at least once or twice back to that chapter. Did but you? Yeah, okay, I don't I totally remember did. that at all. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, de- I definitely did in our wrap up episode with um, Hail Reaper for sure. But okay. yeah. uh, I, I think that that's a, I think it's a huge point. And I think that it's especially important to acknowledge this because it's not Pierce is actively acknowledging that other people within the universe also think like we do in this way, that there are two different people there. OK, which is pretty cool. Yeah, right. So I, I think that it's it's an important thing to kind of point out. And then I think that it's important that we we delved even deeper than, you know, kind of the, the sort of surface level comparison. So. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Any other thoughts on Churchill? Mm. Cool dude. Dude likes cigars. Yeah. He likes cigars. He did. That's yep. uh pocket watches. <laughs> what what do you make of the situation of the Republic fleets? And what do you, do you think that like Mustang's political decisions here are kind of on the right page to go after the different voting blocks and ensure this or do you think that maybe she should consider like she's walking Stellenius's stats Stellenius's Stellenius's stiletto uh do you think that she's walking in the right part of it do you think that she should be seizing more power what what do you think is would be the right move honestly I trust her I trust her entirely I think um I think she's right when she says that she's the smartest person in the room and in the universe and uh you know what I'm gonna go along with whatever she decides because wow. I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm going to trust that she's smarter than I am and uh, just go with it. Fair enough. That's um, that's great. I, I love that. I love Virginia. I love her perspective so much. It's so good. Uh, all right. Uh, also, for the record, we we aren't we didn't like pull any immediate quotes out of these sections. This entire fucking like Virginia is so well written in these early chapters and, and expository. All of it is good. All of it is easy yeah. to like pull out and be like, this is a delicious quote that like, yeah, like my God, mm-hmm. some yeah, of the best writing. It's great. Chapter 20, Virginia Politicos, the flying testicle ship. Do, <laughs> do I have to say more? Like it's <laughs> pair, no. of, pair of balls, the sky hook of balls. Uh, she talks about the aesthetics. <laughs> <laughs> you just gotta wonder if they're hairy or not right like are they shaved they're just wrinkly <laughs> i'm i'm assuming they're wrinkly um what? and i have a reason for that there there's an absolute reason for that because she says that it was designed to look like a brain <laughs> they definitely have wrinkles <laughs> it's like a peanut brain like <laughs> if anything <laughs> oh my god that's <laughs> fucked. Daxo Bezos right there. Wow. 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 Mm-hmm. Wow. 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 Yeah, it's so, so good. I just, I'm, I, I'm going to try to, okay. So, uh, moving on the sort of hustle and bustle around a vote feels very similar to what we might have seen before the battle in a previous chapter from Lysander or Darrow's perspective. And I think that comparison is very intentional on Pierce's part to show that every war is really a conflict on so many more fronts than just the one where the blood is drawn. You know, there's blood drawn in these Mm -hmm. back rooms. This is where, this is the room where it happened, the room where it happened. All right. Anyway. Yeah, I, I think that with Mustang's point of view, we get to see this a lot more 
um, because she's at the epicenter of everything, but also because she seems to think in such a high level that she can kind of juggle all of it at once and, and keep it organized. And I'm noticing more and more with this book, every point of view, he's actually kind of editing his, his voice. Like he, he is writing in the voice of those characters as opposed to just in his own sort of writing style and Mm -hmm. like about the characters. Oh, it seems like a subtle, subtle distinction, but it just, it seems so much more well done in this book than the, than the previous one. And I think having that sort of mindset with Virginia, just being able to handle that, that juggling and the hustle and bustle, as you say, is uh, really easy to translate then. Yeah. It's kind of cool. It's, it's fantastic. I also, I really like appreciate the, like you said, it, it, there's very much kind of that translation, that voice, making sure that that carries carries over and isn't lost between the these sort of different characters and their distinctive personalities. Uh, but I also love, at the same time, the sort of difference between the sort of pre-war moments, right? The the sort of like setup of like getting getting your armor on and getting all this, and in the political atmosphere, it's like getting your stims lined up so that you can stay up for your sixteen hour whatever phone phone con like conferences and calls and whatever else, and like getting all of the the language right and like all these specific things that just feel feel like they're also extracted from Pierce's life working inside of that political sphere, but um, mm-hmm. make a ton of sense in context to the comparison between the the two characters between darrow and virginia right i really enjoy the dive that virginia takes into the balls of this thing you know (laughs) (laughs) down the 200 meter shaft oh my god (laughs) i totally my brain skipped over that because i was still back on the balls description (laughs) um i yeah i woof uh, but the Gigavok are pretty interesting. I actually kind of had trouble picturing them the first time, and so I actually looked up a couple of the words that I, I obviously didn't understand. But cartilaginous, cart, cartilaginous, cartilaginous, deep sea predators, which, if you don't know, folks like me, uh, that is like sharks and stingrays. A lot of sharks and stingrays are cartilaginous, meaning that they're mostly cartilage. Floopy, floopy, boneless dudes. Loopy, floopy, boneless dudes. What the f- <laughs> okay so i i imagine them as like sort of exaggerated bullhead sharks okay so they're i don't know almost teardrop shaped and i imagine like their face is a little bit flatter and their mouth is a little bit wider and just kind of i don't know it says one meter long um if they haven't been activated by cannibalism i guess sure so that's kind of kind of how i imagined it activated by cannibalism true but like well they're gland whatever the gland is right they they literally use the word activated no no i'm I'm with you i'm i'm pretty sure that that's totally correct i all that i'm saying is like i just it's just so funny that like they're activated by that cannibalism like the i don't know the the whole like description of the ecosystem of a gigavoc and the way that they function and kind of fight against each other i thought was fascinating thought it was very interesting Mm -hmm. yeah 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 super cool he just feeds like assassins to them. Right, right, exactly. It's a perfect, perfect <laughs> way to dispose of people. Clap, clap, wipe your hands, no problem. Mm-hmm. Way better than pigs. 
Yeah, I've ran out of uh, barrels for people, so right and yeah. space for barrels of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I only had space for four, and I'm out. Do something about that. Should I drop them in the marsh? There's lots of marsh. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. Uh, let's cut this from the episode. <laughs> And, all right, so Crossland, now now that we're off the record, so uh, you got to go into the swamp. <laughs> yes. As far as you can. Okay. Until you're at least like mid-thigh deep and you need like several cinder blocks. You can't just get away with one or two. You need like three or four per body. Okay. What about the gators? All right. Shit, you're in, you're in a gator place. That I'm, actually I'm makes it easier. Um, you need... Probably some more protection for yourself, <laughs> though, if you have like little pieces of body as bait that you can like throw away from you, that's probably good. Do I need like a big, big like barge with a with a giant fan on the back to push me around the swamp? I feel like that's required. I mean, for style. Style? Okay. All right. Yeah. 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 Right. I think Johnny Quest is one of those. So it's really important that I'm like as cool as Johnny <laughs> Quest. Yeah. I mean, you're... You're never going to be as cool, but you, you can approach. What? Anyway, uh, let's get back to the show. Oh, let's, shit. Uh, yeah, right. Um, wrap we've this, gotta, wrap yeah. this back up. Yeah, and, okay. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll just seamlessly we'll, edit that together. We so can, it sounds like we didn't do this. Yeah, we can We can talk about that <clears throat> off air. No incriminating things here. Right, right. Exactly. <clears throat> yep, yep. Uh, what do you make of Daxo's conversation with Publius Q. Caraval? Man, I just, I just like the sort of commentary it makes on our own government in general. Like, it's clear that all of this, all of this, like, chunk, all of the political conversations that are going on are completely influenced by, like, modern U.S. politics. So, I don't know. I made that note. I don't even remember exactly what they were talking about at that point. There, There's just so much good stuff that passes between the two of them as they're, like, having this conversation. And I think that there's um there's a lesson that I learned from an author this summer called Status Play. And it's basically who's, like, holding, like, if you think about it like a basketball game, it's who's holding the ball, who's holding the power. And something that another character says can pull the ball from their hands, and so then they have the ball. And... I think that this is a brilliant example of status play between the two of them where they're kind of pulling it and pushing and pulling it away from themselves or back towards themselves as they continue down the down the conversation. It's interesting because they're also both, you know, generally considered good characters, right? Like Publius is the incorruptible and Daxo is is Daxo. Incorrigible, uh, right? Incorrigible, incorruptible, I believe as well. I think he had uh, like three three nicknames. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. Yep. They they only bring one of them up in this section. I think it's incorrigible. I think they trioed them at one point, but that might have been later uh, with Quicksilver. But okay, but yeah, maybe. Regardless, I I think that it is fantastically done. And just uh, Mustang walking out of the wall of water. <laughs> yeah, like excuse me. <laughs> it's a it's a great moment um i appreciate this line in particular of course fascism is a scourge sometimes we must sacrifice to destroy it and i think that this is kind of obviously it's an important point as far as justification goes towards the destruction of the society remnant and i'm glad that it was made into such simple terms here by publius what do you think of his and virginia's stance on the moral quandary of the war we kind of discussed it previously like is it the right thing to like be killing all these people doing it this way and we really discussed it back in Iron Goal. 
old with kind of the the murders of of a lot of like low colors that maybe i don't know darrow previous darrow might have felt differently about what do you think so it seemed like there was a lot of tension in that conversation Mm -hmm. clearly um but it it also seemed like they were kind of on the same page the entire time to a certain extent like they they both understand that they're in this position where even if there are significant casualties, it would pale in comparison to the the deaths that would be sustained by like not not going to these lengths mm-hmm. to uh, to try to finish the war. I don't know. The, like like you said, sacrifices need to be made to to quash fascism. And that that's gonna meet that's gonna those sacrifices are going to be innocent people and millions of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is, I think you're so on the nose there, PJ. That's perfect. I love it. I love it. Good work. Good stuff. I don't know if it's that, like, that great of a read. I think that's explicitly what he's saying. Well, I know, but, but like, I think, I think that, like, there's, because he is this incorruptible force, like, there's nothing more to read from him. He's direct. He's not playing yeah. at anything, you know? Right. right. There's. Exactly. No, nothing else to peel back but the honesty. So, yeah. And if the incorruptible is okay with these, not okay with, but is accepting of these casualties and these sacrifices, it kind of goes to show that they're kind of on the right path. Definitely, without a doubt. And that's that's exactly, I think, how that shakes out for the, the group of them. And I think that, truth be told, I think that Virginia probably tosses it back and forth more and thinks that, you know than Publius probably does like thinking about the, the sort of casualties and whatnot, likely because her husband's also the one doing it, but yeah, yeah. that's true. So we've spoken about Cassandra before the uh, Trojan Cirrus all the way back in episode eight of iron gold originally brought up by Alexander around Rona and Darrow. Uh, in case you don't remember Cirrus, that was flagrantly disregarded uh, back in the what Trojan war. Cirrus? So like a person of prophecy, like that seeing into the future. So, but, but a woman, not just a seer. Correct. A seer. Yeah. It's gotta, gotta be, gotta be separate named CRS, which is just a, it looks dumb on paper is what I'm saying. Yeah. Fair. I mean, I, I typed that out. I don't know. It's just me, but (laughs) I I think that it's interesting to see her come back here now mentioned in the story Mm -hmm. and it fits in, I think into the story a bit more neatly than it did the first time that we kind of talked through it. As Daxo refers to it as Cassandra syndrome, as he refers to Publius's position in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Publius is such an interesting character. And um, more than anything, I'm glad we're getting a more in-depth conversation with and about him. Just being staunch in his refusal to uh, take part in any sort of corruption or like Ah, anything immoral within the government it's it's interesting and refreshing but it's also kind of sad in his nobility because he kind of becomes an outsider to the rest of the senate at this point Mm -hmm. um is that right or am i like reading that completely wrong it seemed like he was just kind of the the lone wolf off to the side i think he's still the leader of the um copper block all told as much as, well, here's here's the interesting tidbit, right? Like, Virginia 
speaks about this a little bit earlier, but she's like, I predicted that we would move on from colorism into planetary tribalism, right? And so the blocks have kind of fractured a little bit more around the planets than they are grouped around the colors. But I think that he still holds a decent grip over the rest of the coppers based on what we're given inside of this chapter. So, okay. but they're kind of, um, I don't want to like homeless isn't the right word, but they they're more fluid between the blocks. It seems they're they're not associated with either uh, of the two major parties, the Optimate or the Vox Populi. OK, if that gotcha. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally makes totally makes sense. But like that, that's just kind of what I got off of the uh, Cassandra syndrome syndrome line, like being sort of an outsider that he's not going to be paid attention to as much and not going to be like heated. I agree with you. I think one of the interesting components here that fits in as well is that they're also trying to court Publius. And so like insulting him is a weird move, right? Like, I mean, not not exactly insulting him, but kind of like Daxo talking down to him is an interesting political move. And it feels like one between friends in a way. You know, it does feel like one between friends and it also feels like Daxo doesn't necessarily know how to do anything but talk down to somebody. <laughs> that's a fair <laughs> point. <laughs> Virginia is pretty explicit about that, too. So that's a good point. Oh, God. <laughs> you, you, fair. fair. I, I also think that fits in here. So I, I also love the banter that happens after this moment, of course, between Virginia and Daxo and how. Daxo is just such an intellectual prick. He stands above everyone else, despite all of like his other familial traits that are associated with the Telemannus family. Like he is kind of nice. He's got a lot of the the other sort of like warm warm things going on. Obviously, he's noted like he saved Virginia's life as a child, which is a huge deal. Despite them not really interacting until that point, uh, kind of like he's earned their like Virginia has earned their friendship and is like actually his only friend. That and I. <laughs> The, the fucking line that got me this time is when Virginia points out that he was modeling himself after Lucifer from Milton's Paradise Lost, and he's like, fucking finally someone figured it out. Like, I just, he's got that, like, sort of dreaded self-loathing that Lucifer has of that. And I just love, I love that little back and forth exchange between the two of them and sort of the, the consistent wit. I should probably read Paradise Lost, huh? <laughs> I mean the the number of references that pierce makes to paradise lost is a little everybody nutty. makes references to paradise lost it it's it's like one of three that like i think most people should read once they are readers i don't think you should hand it to like a 16 year old and be like hey try to read this uh because i don't think you'll get anything out of it but like dante's one inferno my, paradise lost um, one of my favorite bands has a song about paradise lost yeah i still have fucking read it uh, i mean yeah um right you should probably Is read it just it. called paradise lost yeah it's just paradise I lost so. by milton yeah john milton but no 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 the the you song oh yeah i think it's yeah, just yeah. called paradise well, lost. All, that that whole record pj is all like almost all the titles of those songs are after classical literature books like gotcha. gravity's rainbow um god what the fuck what the fuck is the other they're like four uh, obviously like it opens it opens up with paradise lost a poem by john milton uh um, i am so it's the only song i really like on the album anyway, well so. leave me alone it's it's my favorite <laughs> album of theirs because it's all it's know, fucking it's, lit, literature that, references it's weird plenty. to me yeah it's weird to me that you like it that much but i guess it makes more sense now 1984 the infinite jest um 
the uh, like the lottery of course um and uh darkness bleeds so i mean there there are a lot of like classical literature references basically what this is just this totally random tangent here folks welcome but, to hard pan yeah welcome to hard pan for four <laughs> seconds uh <laughs> the used uh, burt mccracken had a very serious drug problem and what he did to kind of cut cold turkey to like cut out of his drug problem is he replaced it with reading and so he's he like goes he chews through books and literature like it's nothing now and that's how he just has chosen to replace that fixation so he often mm. often in the last five or six years quotes um little tiny sections in lyrics so that makes sense anyway that's uh that's your little dose of hard pan <laughs> be used and paradise lost how do you feel about virginia and daxo's relationship though like just in general yeah yeah what do you think it, of it? it seems uh i don't know it it's hard to say it doesn't seem necessarily like super friendly but it doesn't seem business only either hmm. uh i don't know i don't know what i think of it, it it's in a weird spot I think it's a good relationship at this point. Um, there are disagreements. It's healthy. I think it's a healthy relationship. Okay. They can push against each other without without worrying about um, the other overreading it or anything like that. It, it, it seems like they'd be... Hmm. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I like, do. I do. I, I think that you're I can't put at, it to words properly. Like they've got a proper friendship... But it's also like driven out of kind of out of work. And I don't know, there, there are components that are all over the place with their friendship. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also interesting, of course, to go back to the point that like Dax's only friend is Virginia. <laughs> like, Yeah. And he, he's like, I'm just picky with friends. And it's like, well, you picked one friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a great moment. It's a great moment. We We move from that conversation, of course, to a mantra that they recite constantly together apparently and it is one that i said felt torn straight out of marcus aurelius's meditations in the sort of early chapters in the early books of uh of meditations and upon googling you know what you find when you google that little quote there that they have in the book you find dark age you find dark age quotes you know what it actually is that quote that i recognized immediately was actually something straight out of book five of meditations by Marcus Aurelius. So the only thing that is added is the very last line, that fourth line, but from directly from book five, page 61 of the Gregory Hayes translation, if you care, book five point 24 matter, how tiny your share of it time, how brief and fleeting your allotment of it fate, how small a role you play in it. And then 26, I think, kind of feeds into this a little bit. The the mind is the ruler of the soul. It should remain unstirred by the agitations of flesh, gentle and violent ones alike, not mingling with them, but fencing itself off and keeping those feelings in their place. When they make their way into your thoughts through the sympathetic connection between your mind and body, don't try to resist the sensation. The sensation is natural, but don't let the mind start with the judgments calling it good or bad. And that actually feels like a summation to me of the fourth line that Pierce gives. So, okay. So this is like Marcus Aurelius guy. He's like an author or something. I fucking hate you. <laughs> Hi. I <laughs> 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 yeah yeah 
It's it's worth noting. I, I don't know if I've actually said this on the show before, but Marcus met the meditations of Marcus Aurelius were originally just a diary. They were only ever intended to be a diary. And then someone found them, translated them and published them. So they were never intended to be public. These were all internal moments for him to reflect on his own life and how he wanted to behave and change and act. Worth noting. Gotcha. I so. think you did mention that at one point. I talk about meditations enough where I would not be shocked if I've mentioned it like eight times. Yeah, you talk about way too fucking often. Leave me alone. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then we cut to the the moving the political machine of which Virginia absolutely adores being a part of as she kind of smiles saying that she absolutely loves this at the end of the chapter. And yeah, it's so good. uh It's I I don't know if I'm saying this enough here i love these chapters with virginia Mm -hmm. they are so so interesting so well written just different i love it super into it you know we we haven't talked about this for a while but did you ever think we'd get here from the original red rising book no it seems so like daunting and so far off yeah like this doesn't feel like the original town at all right but it still is in the world oh i thought you meant like deep I didn't. I, I figured I would get way too busy to be able to continue this. Like, oh, I figured we show. would get too busy throughout the year, and like we just it would peter out. I'm so happy that we've gotten to this book. It just felt like such a daunting, far off thing when you posted like our schedule initially internally. You're like, all right, so here's our schedule through like August <laughs> of 2021. Yeah. I'm like, oh, we started, yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool. That's uh that's a lot. Yep. Yep. And but just the progression of the the quality of writing has been really really cool. Yeah, and I think and No, it is it is it feels like an entirely different writer between the first book and here. Well, and the and the world just becomes so much larger with each and every single book. It's just it's insane the amount of depth that that gets poured into these things. It's it's just bonkers. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the first book is one world and it starts off with like the underground of one world. So, yeah, like it, it grows, it grows quickly, but aggressively. Yeah, it almost feels exponential, but maybe it's logarithmic. It'd be linear. Could I guess it could be linear. No, it'd be logarithmic. It'd be logarithmic. Yeah, I think so. So with that, we move on from Virginia. We'll come back to her right at the end here this week, but we're going to move into Ephraim with the chapter Mauler, Brawler, Legacy Hauler. And mm-hmm. we're back with Ephraim T-Horn after a nice 200-ish page vacation away from the man who numbs himself up to get away from and life. And we back. 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 <laughs> it's so nice it's so interesting it's so fun to be back in with Ephraim Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. I yes it does it feels home it does it does it's it's actually it's so like weird and warm I love Ephraim so much uh I I love the way that this chapter also starts off with these like staccato panicked language from Ephraim inside of his head the italics gives us this like real feeling as though he's dying but scrambling to stay alive and do what he needs to the shift in font too from the bold as the computer calls out for the queen like I said the italics for him is such a wonderful stylistic choice and then later when he starts to recover a little bit going back and uh, there's just all of these different 
excellent choices to pull off this chapter here that I adore. Mm-hmm. The the start of this chapter is really when I consciously started thinking about the differences in voice that Pierce was putting towards the writing. It is so different and so unique and so distinct from Mustang mm-hmm. and from Darrow's point of view and from Lysander's point of view for that matter. But this point here, like the beginning of this chapter, was when it consciously hit my brain. Yeah. Yeah. Could not agree more that it, it becomes becomes so especially going from Virginia to Ephraim. They both have their like side jokes to themselves that they tell inside of their head, but they're different. They're like starkly different. Ephraim at one point makes a comment about art and and is like making a joke about art in his head versus like Virginia is kind of insulting the intelligence of other people. <laughs> like You know, like it, it's just it's. It is truly as though we are actually inhabiting two different characters. And I know that that's not it's not an uncommon thing to do in literature, but it is occasional. It is not nearly as stark and as quite as well executed as it is here. Right. So I just want to just want to pay tribute to that. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Man, he's gotten he's gotten so good at writing. Look how our boy has grown up. Look, look at our boy. (laughs) Our boy. That, that Piercy boy. Piercy boy. The the dreaming picture he has of Trigg as well after being sedated is just like a sad and beautiful image, a reflection of a man we barely knew again coming back in these hot flashes to Ephraim. Hot flashes. Well, yeah, I, I wrote hot flashes and I was like, yeah, I'm sticking by it, even though PJ's going to say <laughs> shit about it. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. It was a wonderful sight. Mm-hmm. A wonderful sight of Trig, but it was cut short, much like Trig was. Ooh, ooh, it's brutal. Both Br- literally bru- and in his life. Did Did you hear what I said? No, I said it's brutal. <laughs> I meant to say beautiful, but my brain—it's like it's brutal and beautiful. I don't know, brutal. Oops, brutal. Uh, yeah. I I, I want to read just a little bit of it here. I know I didn't have it there originally, but all I want is to float there with him, to smell the salt, to lie in the cradle as the sea rocks us to sleep. The moon pulses in the sky like an atomic dilation, drawing me up into its gravity. No, 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 no. And like that also is just like such a small thing writing wise, but like removing the spaces from no gives you that kind of panicked feel again where the tone went calm after the sedation and then all of a sudden rushed and then it cuts to hatchet face. And, you know, I, I just fuck. Ah, dick, bah. <laughs> Dude, what? I think about like dreaming. I, I don't dream very often. Um, but sometimes when I have like a particularly nice dream and then I'm waking up, like I ha- I definitely have that feeling of like, no, 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 like let me let me go back to sleep and continue this dream. I have I've had those. How nice that by the way that you have nice dreams whenever you dream. How how fun for you. It's not necessarily nice, but they're oh, fun. Well, okay. <laughs> I very seldomly have good dreams. Uh but that's <laughs> Probably more of a me problem, actually. We just real quickly call up my therapist in the middle of this episode and work this out so he can continue. Um, yep. but it's me. You know it's me. Like That I'm dreaming can, about you? this out here. No, the no. therapist. If, if I'm in your dreams, PJ. Please don't choose me as a therapist. I would be bad at it. 
PJ, I think. <laughs> PJ, if you see me in your dreams, can we just like exchange a high five and do like the woogity woogity woogity? You know, then like I'll know that power. we're actually like not in a real world thing, but like we're actually physically connected somehow. But yes, I will do the the Rocket League wiggity 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 with you. Okay, okay, Rocket Power. But yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, not Rocket League. <laughs> <laughs> Different thing entirely. No, I, I totally get it. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ, where are we going with dreams? Anyway, I particularly, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I also like love all the different moments that are tucked in here where we get this sort of like third person view of Ephraim from his own first person perspective as, as he himself is having this truly like out of body experience. We're, we're talking about dreams. This feels in the same way that a dream might. And he actually thinks that he might be dreaming and like doesn't understand. He hears a scream and then later he realizes it's his. Uh, it, it all kind of paints this very painful picture here for him. And I think it's only made more dramatic when he is going through his withdrawal with Pax in the room and he tries to bargain for Z to release him from these ghosts of his past and the pain registering within him. And I think that like unlike traditional PTSD, which would be kind of the the sort of opposite exposure, right? It would be, you know, exposure via um, something happening around you or something reminding you of these things. This is a withdrawal that forces him to go back into those moments that he's buried, which is kind of the reverse, like I said. Obviously not a psychologist, but from my understanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there was a comment from Pax. You asked for Z before you asked for Volga. Which was like personally kind of a shot to the heart to me a little oh, bit. Snowball. Um, so it, it was mentioned like he he mentioned her like in his internal monologue earlier in the chapter, mm-hmm. and like I think similar to probably what he was thinking, there was that comment already. So I hadn't even considered that he had, hadn't actually spoken her name out loud at all and just assumed that she was dead. You know, like assume yeah. that there was nothing. He- he could do about it um i don't know it was just kind of heartbreaking when he when he was told that he never actually like asked about her yeah i i totally agree with you and i think that pax bringing that up is i think interesting in in two different ways one of course is is the sort of um the shot to the heart that we get that ephraim didn't think of that first in fact we know that he thought of trig first which logically makes makes some kind of sense but then we have the internal monologue moment with uh, about around Volga, like you said, and then kind of skips over it. But I think what's also I interesting Volga was first. I thought Volga was like right away in the chapter. Maybe, maybe Volga is first. I don't think that detracts from this point that I want to make here. No, it does. Is that the fact that Pax cares about Ephraim is interesting, right? That's different. This man abducted us and then rescued us, I guess. Um, but he like, he cares enough to recognize about like the, even the story of Volga to, to remember that and to bring that up and to, in, I mean, I guess not encourage, but force him <laughs> to, to quit and kind of go clean right now in this moment. And I think that that is maybe one of the more interesting parts of, of the story at the moment. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It is. I'm trying to trying to figure that out. I think partially it's probably because he knows that the better state that Ephraim is in, the better chance he has of getting out of here and getting back home. I don't know if so maybe it's entirely selfish to keep him sharp and keep him 
in, in a good headspace and healthy physically and mentally. But I don't know. It's fair. Good point. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. All right. All right. And then the chapter ends with a gray military chant, the namesake and title of our chapter, as Ephraim is reduced back to some of the only things his brain can hang on to in this extreme bout with sobriety. Yeah, the the chants were pretty interesting. So there there's the mention of a crow being obviously obsidians, but there's also the quote, smoke that ant. I don't recognize ant as a slang for any specific color or any group of people or anything. Is that something that was mentioned elsewhere? Is that something that we may learn later? Should I, should I know this already? I don't feel like it is. Okay, let's just read the quote here. Chop them if they're taller, stomp them if they're smaller, mauler, brawler, legacy hauler, smoke that crow, earn this hauler, mauler, brawler, legacy hauler, smoke that ant, pay off your collar, legio, eterna, victress, one more time, you fucking dogs, mauler, brawler, legacy hauler. Um, <clears throat> my assumption would be an ant would probably be like a red or a brown, but. Okay. That's fair. Smoke that ant, pay off your collar. Um, hmm. Yeah. Because it's also smoke that crow, so like, yeah, right, right. My assumption would also be that it's a different color, but you know the grays are obviously in charge of enforcing on all of the lower colors, so that kind of would track between. Yeah, maybe maybe it's just ant in general, a low color. Yeah, could be, could be, especially since so many kind of match up with an ant's color scheme, right, PJ? You would know. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I mean there are ants that are gold too, though. Are there are there pink ants, PJ? Vaguely, vaguely pink. Hmm. Interesting. More red than pink. Chapter and orange. Chapter twenty-two. Ephraim unshorn. So unshorn opens up, and it feels as though Ephraim, the Ephraim that like we know, really returns in real force now that he's kind of getting better. Um, his leg is being repaired and is in fact stronger than it was previously. He's got that sarcastic wit about him, and his head is on his shoulders again. But maybe given the forced withdrawal from Zolodone that he went through through Pax, he might open up, kind of like he was at the end of Iron Gold. What do you make of kind of the combination of um, these sort of? Uh, forced cold turkey component here what what do you make of it all so i the way i'm kind of reading this is that he doesn't really need zolodone unless he's faced with situations where he's either isolated or has time to think about trig or anybody else that he's lost when he's kind of on task or like has has a goal of some sort and is actively doing something it doesn't seem like he really needs anything and he can kind of control himself yeah it's kind of the vibe i get okay all right i don't know i'm interested in it though that makes that is um i'm just trying to think through here because i i think that i kind of agree with you but i also think that part of the reason that he takes zolodone is to prevent him from having those feelings in the first place you know like exactly that's what i'm saying what I'm saying is he the only times he like goes through any sort of withdrawal is when he's yeah. in a situation where he's thinking about Trig or thinking about the people that he's lost or is isolated and doesn't want to deal with it. Hmm. But if he's I think that he always doesn't want to deal with it, though, I think I feel like that's my well, my component here is that previously because it was so accessible to him, 
he was just taking it all the time that we didn't have to deal with it you know mm-hmm. so i but guess like right right now he's acting basically normally yeah kind of snapped out of the withdrawal symptoms mm-hmm. that we were sort of talking about because he has something else on his mind yeah okay yeah that that works yeah i mean i i think that there's a lot to um unpack here as far as like addiction goes of course but <laughs> absolutely um that's not i mean that's that's something that we're constantly unpacking with Ephraim's character so i i love the description of the broken olympia that we have here as well and the little bit of history that we get about the war that raged for the past decade i think that this is just kind of a brilliant choice on pierce's part by the way to like pack in sort of the different moments without giving us you know full books or explanations but just like dropping in bits about like the block war and the the rat war and whatnot um, but the Reaper and Sefi fighting against the Minotaur here and the Broken Spires, it all contributes to this like wonderful visage where Ephraim and the kids find themselves. Yeah, uh, there's there's a quote in that in that chunk that I found to be like striking. I, I just really liked this quote of the war moved on. Olympia didn't. Mm. I don't know why that's just. It speaks to me. It's well-written, it's beautiful, it's concise, and it conveys the message perfectly. Yeah, totally. I, Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it speaks a lot to also the state of the Bologna estate, because who's going to come back? Like, the Bolognas aren't going to come back and repair it. They're all dead, except for Julia, and she's on Mercury, Venus, somewhere yeah. in space. But yeah. Mm-hmm. I hopefully dead soon. Hopefully dead soon. <laughs> I have to bring this like little little tiny bit up here. It's just really important uh, that we we talk about this. But there's a quote here around page 177. Uh, Cooking fires twirl from broken buildings, and I think I don't know if I have to say anything more. You know, the cooking fires of Olympia show that this is going to be the center point for the rest of the story because we haven't had any other mentions of cooks for the entire book. So doesn't that mean yeah. that this is, it's kind of the, you know, this is the important one. I don't know. It feels like some pretty heavy foreshadowing, right? Feels like some pretty heavy cook activity. <laughs> cook zone in Olympia. The cook zone. <laughs> the cook zone. Welcome to the cook zone. Pom, pom, pom. Thunderdome music plays. <laughs> <laughs> yes so we're, we're introduced to a shaman of whom we'll get to know a little bit later we can refer to him as osgard of course but as well as more of the obsidian religion i hear that i i not i hear that i think is very interesting that of like the reading of bones as well as of the scuggy the elite warrior women of the obsidian cast all shortly before ephraim leaps out of a window absolutely terrified of the namesake of the chapter, Valdir the Unshorn, the concubine to the queen, of whom we later know as Queen Sefi. Uh, did you have any particular favorite reveals in the sort of casual reflection on the history of the Obsidian here, or of Valdir, or of just kind of everything? There's just so, this is such a well-executed, like, info dump in a lot of ways. I, I love it. Yeah. All of it was super, super interesting. Like, I want more lore. I want more lore on the Obsidian specifically. But, the torque rings. Mm-hmm. Is it torque? Is that the right way to pronounce it? I think T-R-C. it's torque. Yep. Torque rings. Uh, melted down gold sigils that like are, are what they're constructed of. And the fact that they just don't bother with like grays from uh, 
Ephraim's, Ephraim's perspective, obviously. Like, you just don't fucking bother, like, melting down their sigils. It's just the golds. Um, I don't know. It, it's kind of hardcore. It's pretty cool. Like, making rings out of the, out of the people that you're <laughs> defeating. Oh, yeah. I don't know why I like that, that idea so much. And just the idea of some seven fingered person with like three or four rings on each finger, just like, I don't know. I'm just imagining things, I guess. I don't think they mention like how many each person's wearing, but like I, I can imagine a bunch of rings on one finger, like adorning all of them. I think that's one of the fantastic parts about like when a good book really like picks you up and lets you like run with your like your imagination can really run with it. That's a great example. You know, like you you have enough of a description of the obsidian that you just get this visual image because that's mm-hmm. the way that it is and the way that it should be. So, I yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. I love it. It's great. Um great point on the torque yeah, rings yeah. though. Mm-hmm. Uh and Ephraim's new leg being, you know, better than his old leg is interesting too. Like jumping too far and kind of the funny moments that, of like grappling <laughs> the vines and just imagine trying to jump when suddenly one leg is way more powerful than the other. Like three times, right? I think something like that. Yeah, three times more powerful. But like that leg's three times more powerful than his old leg was. But it's also probably three times more powerful than his current other leg is. Oh right. So like right. he's not jumping. Does he even just like, like <laughs> just like spindle off when he's trying to jump <laughs> spins yeah just in the air <laughs> it's like what the fuck <laughs> totally <laughs> but then while trying to escape Ephraim is caught by six griffins mounted with Skuggy and a seventh monster unmounted god eater Sefi's personal steed before darrow's cavalry commander steps forward and introduces his monstrous self to us as we mentioned before valdir the unshorn he's a He's got to be a pretty big threat for Ephraim to, to like just imply castration and death. You know, like he's he he's pretty threatening to Ephraim himself in this sort of immediate moment. Um, what feels does he give you? What what do you think of the whole catch him scene? I mean, God Eater is such a good name, right? Like for for anything, <laughs> God Eater is so good, but. Obviously, it gives some more insight into obsidian culture. Mm-hmm. Like we mentioned in the previous question, like we're just getting a whole lot of lore on obsidians, which is sweet. Um, I'm excited to get to know this lovely fellow even more. Uh, <laughs> based on how he speaks, though, I'm kind of surprised his voice in, isn't in bold like Ragnar's was, you know? Interesting. Sure. Like it, it seems like he's got a big, deep, booming voice. I don't know why. I'm also imagining him as, uh, is it Brick? I think his name is Brick in the uh, first Borderlands game. Mm, yeah, the big dude. Yeah, the giant dude. That's that's who I am imagining okay. for some reason. Just, just absolute tank of a person. Fair. And I don't know if that's the case because a lot of the Obsidians are long spindly dudes. You know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. I think that uh, most of them are described standard, but Freyhild, of course, is the one that's kind of described differently as sort of a lithe creature. Toothless was like just long and, to- and spaghetti-limbed. Tongueless, not toothless. 
<laughs> I love Toothless. He's so cute. Uh, but yeah, no, totally. You're right. Is Toothless like somebody? He's a, dra- he's a dragon from How to Train Your Dragon. Oh, <laughs> he's the dragon, the black one. The cute I've black never dragon. seen that movie. What? Oh, that's sad. It's actually such a good movie. Oh, I'm gonna get so much shit for this, but I love that movie. It's I'll so watch good. it. It's so good. It's Aren't there it. like three or four of them? Now? There's three. They're all pretty good. The first one's great. Okay. The second one's great. I haven't actually watched the third one. Uh, but well-reviewed, nonetheless. Like, some of the best-reviewed uh, DreamWorks movies. Anyway, I, mm-hmm. I want to I make mention of this, too, with uh, God Eater. Um, it's it's an interesting name, of course. And as you brought up, it's a fantastic name. But I, I find it intriguing, of course, because the, the Obsidians are the ones who kind of shorn off the chains and then uh like went and fought back against the golds and so god eater feels like it almost could be gold eater you know because it was clearly killing their yeah, gods like R- ragnar um called darrow godchild mm-hmm. when he first met him yeah talking through the through the radio or whatever oh yeah definitely but i i just wanted to bring that up cuz i feel like that's a that's an easy to miss like small detail but yeah. With that, we move into chapter 23, Ephraim, Queen. I love the little introduction and nuggets of wisdom we get from Osgard. Right off the bat, he just has this like little comment that I love that he makes about gifts. Only a fool gives a gift when the first gift is valued so little. And there's just so many like different moments with him. He's great. Yeah. I just like that he's sitting on a headless statue munching on some walnuts the whole time. On the first, in the first section, he's referred to as a sofa. Like, he thought that he was a sofa. That's another moment of, like, Ephraim's humor where you're like, Jesus Christ, dude. Like, yeah. fuck. Yeah. Uh, I, right off the bat, I like this character. So I'm excited to see where he goes. Cool. Cool. Yeah. He's, he's, mm-hmm. uh, he's fun so far. So. We move on from that to the children fighting and training amongst the obsidians. And I think that it's a wonderful scene divided between the two children and narrated and described by Osgard and sort of their their status in the world. It's especially interesting when it moves from the violence of Victra or girl, as she's referred to, uh, <laughs> to the careful control of Pax or boy and, and the more dangerous of the two, according to the shaman. I love the way that like Pax backs up and dispatches them with his eyes closed so simply with a staff you know making a short mockery after losing the conventional contest by stepping out of the arena and like puts a shard in the dude's neck two millimeters away from a, an artery and there's just this the carotid like yeah it's gonna fucking kill him I, like he he's making a mockery of this whole thing and it f- reminds me of like a certain red gold that like we might know a thing about or two like it kind of feels hmm hmm hmm, hmm. Who would that be? I don't know. Weird. Dude's a little dangerous. Strange. Weird. Strange. <laughs> yeah. What'd you make of the trading seat? Ah, <laughs> oh, man, it was, it was delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was, um, it was a really interesting, um, dichotomy, I guess, mm-hmm. where, uh, a comparison between sort of what they're used to training and, um, the more str- like they're, they're training for actual combat. And like what things will be like. And this is more like, this is more of a game. These are, there are rules and break a rule and you lose the game. Hmm. I I think that's where that sort of, um, I don't want to call it disrespect from PAX necessarily, but just kind of flagrant disregard for what's been happening 
in this game that he's he's joined um so steps out but still like goes for the throat literally um and that, like it doesn't seem like that would be something that they would do you know in their in their training at home in in electra yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think that it's definitely connected with Sefi and the way that he kind of like talks down to her a little bit is just yeah. so reminiscent of Virginia um, in, in a lot of ways. Oh, after absolutely. We just, <laughs> after we just got to like go sit through her character, right? Like it feels very much like, a, you know, just like that. But I, I'm more saying like they did a lot of like sword training and fight yep. training. Right. And I'm guessing they didn't have like the fight's over if you step out of the ring kind of oh kind no of not thing. at all right right more that's of, where i'm coming at more of a surrender you know what like that's at the very least the picture that we got in iron gold right of sort of the duel between electra and pax was one mm-hmm. of you know sort of surrender it also makes you like revisit that duel in your head and go like did pax choose to lose Ooh, interesting huh you know Maybe you didn't want to show I don't know about that. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know about that. I'd have to go back and read it again. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> it's interesting when you start to get to these parts, but yeah. Just want to bring that up. Mm-hmm. So I, I love like after we move on from the kids, of course, and sort of the speech that Pax gives, which is absolutely fantastic. The way that he derides Seffy just like fucking Virginia would like it's literally perfect. It's it's just like, oh, you are your mom's child for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I I love like all the other Nagal that's exchanged with Sefi from Ephraim and before getting to like a couple of the things that we might have missed like namely the fact that like Ephraim's heart stopped three times over the course of the time from the crash until now but she brings him up uh, she brings up something like really important here that I can't skip over despite my predilection to do so because it's a difficult topic um, talk about addiction and whatnot but she speaks directly to Ephraim about his addiction to Zolodone and the choice to face and bear that numbness and she replies with the sort of classic line like life is meant to be felt else why live valleys make mountains and wh- what did you kind of make of of all of the various components from Sefi? I thought it was I keep using the word interesting but I thought it was interesting that there was <laughs> such a distinction in her mind um, between the different drugs that were brought up and what was acceptable and what wasn't. There was a certain amount of consistency to it though. Like um, anything that suppressed normal feelings was condemned and anything that seemed to enhance feelings was accepted at least. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, it sort of made me think what, what, what do you think she would think of alcohol in general? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I feel like the the read on alcohol. I feel like they drank previously in the other books, so she's probably I don't okay with them. It. I'm pretty sure at um uh, at Victra and um, Severa's wedding. That might have been more of a cultural thing, though. Like, yeah. Oh, totally. There, I, I'm not. There, there are toasts and there are things happening at this wedding, and we are not doing anything. So this is a responsible time to drink. Yeah. Again, I, not dissuading from your opinion. I'm just. I was yeah. trying to remember times where she may have come into contact with that or had an opinion, um, which mm-hmm. is also interesting because obviously Volga drinks. We know that Volga drinks from the previous book as well. So it's not. That's as though, a good point. 
It's not yeah. as though it's entirely frowned upon, but she is the queen, right? So she's got a little bit more command. I'm working this out out loud, so. Yeah, but um, th- there's the berserkers right. that were indoctrinated in this, like, rage drug, essentially. Yeah. Um, so it's not like obsidians have always been against these kinds of drugs. It's just Sefi specifically, and she's imposing that will on all of the people that are following her. Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting question. I also feel like maybe that her judgment was passed maybe more directly at Ephraim and he deflected by talking about other things. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. That's what else would he do? <laughs> right, right. And so <laughs> of course he was, he's going to deflect. He's he was deflecting by like pointing to kind of like double standards of course, right? But I think she was mm-hmm. trying to be more specific about him because of her understanding of him. So that Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know if there's any way to like uniformly read that. I just think it's an interesting kind of conversation, especially like you said, how would you react to alcohol? How would you react to other things? What What's the sort of consistent rule set? And like you said, I think it kind of does fall in line with, you know, mood boost, boosters versus depressants or numbers, num nums, num nums, num nums. I don't think you should call them num nums. I think the uh, call general will get on your ass about uh, advertising to children. I can't call Advil num nums. We have a disclaimer on the front side of the podcast. It's fine. <laughs> um, yeah no. all right advil is now num nums <laughs> um thanks that's our meme for the week <laughs> not not our meme instagram will actually suspend our account forever uh so with that again again uh with with that we'll move on and talk about xenophon i think that xenophon is kind of an interesting introduction here right they're a very interesting character i think and one that feels very distant and kind of foreign at the moment we get a little we get a couple more moments with them um but did you have any immediate thoughts on them as of yet uh nothing super strong but i'm intrigued Mm -hmm. i don't know i'm excited i'm excited to learn more but like i i feel like we really didn't yeah i think that what's interesting is sort of the description of their age right like they could be 30 or 80 you know like what yeah <laughs> what do you what do you mean and they've yeah. all got like baby faces and yeah hmm. mm-hmm. definitely interesting yeah. baby faces as in literal baby faces like the fear night just like the fear night <laughs> no hopefully masks hopefully not like the fear night i hope not oh, oh fearsome but weirdly i kind of hope so you know that'd be interesting could could make it interesting what do you make of sefi's decision here to form the all tribe and separate from the republic i know this is a massive question but what do you what do you make of of this whole movement of the obsidians and the sort of the geopolitical change i felt like it was inevitable yeah you actually called this this out like uh, back in fucking morningstar dude yeah i did you did you're like (laughs) i I absolutely believe this was gonna happen the entire time. I think there was this rift between Darrow, Darrow and Sefi starting in Morningstar. And like it just got worse with the Republic. And on top of everything else, the like with the bulk of the Obsidian, the Republic really couldn't stop them. They couldn't do anything about it if they were to do this. So I think I think it was inevitable. Yeah, I think it was in- inevitable. I think it makes total sense. And I think she's really, truly doing what's best for her people. And that's not necessarily what's best for the rest of the people, but her priority is her people. So I can't necessarily falter for doing it either. Yeah, totally. I 
I couldn't agree with you more. I think that it logically makes sense for Sefi to have made this move, especially when she compares the the sort of deaths of the society to the deaths of the Republic and like looks at it factually and sort of the repression that they've been through no matter what and, and oppression that they've been through no matter what. I think what's interesting is that um, Ephraim kind of points out that like, what are you going to do? Are you going to fight against them? And it's like, no, we'll just form a sovereign nation, basically, like don't encroach. And yeah. I think that that's a good call, all told. Would be interesting is if they start recruiting large, large groups of other colors to join them. That could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think they would? Not. I think they could. I think they're so self-sufficient because that's the way that they've always been. They are. You know, that's like true. on the polls, it's always just been them. Unlike a lot of the other colors who depend on other colors. Mm-hmm. Obsidians are more self-sufficient. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I could see them um, because they're self they're self sufficient on the on the poles of the countries, but they're not necessarily technologically advanced. Sure. There. Yeah. And now that they've been living within normal society, it might be nice for them to recruit a bunch of reds to mine for them and a bunch of oranges to build things for them and like it, re- recruit the other colors to come join them, not necessarily to. Like, I don't know. I don't know. She she makes a comment just just to your point a little bit and to kind of give you a little bit of something here. She makes a comment about uh, the other colors being having taught them things. And so they've grown, you know, they can they can fix the machines, they can do other things. But the the Scuggy don't have the skills that he has. They don't have the skill of a crew. They don't have the skill of um, state manipulation that they need. And so it's kind mm. of like the final tool and tool belt in some ways, this sort of her pitch to Ephraim, you know? Right. So yeah. it feels like they could, but I, I see your point. They could also recruit colors, you know, but that's a good point. They don't really need to, they don't need to, but I think it would probably be helpful to your point. Mm-hmm. I, I love Steffi's note on language here as well. And what Nagal doesn't have in it. And that is her, her the word that she loves the most in common practicality. And this is something that we know Ephraim has for sure, that Ephraim is. He has always been a practical man this whole time. And with that, Ephraim's goal comes into the clearing. He's going to train the Skuggy, the elite assassins, what he knows about leading a crew and political, well, manipulation, breaking into places and all the all the fun shit that Ephraim knows how to do. Yeah, I'm like morbidly excited <laughs> to see what he's <laughs> able to do with them. Yeah. In, more directly, though, I, I'm impressed with Sefi's plan. And uh, the fact that she knows that F's position is one that's, first of all, fucked. Like, he is in a fucked position. Yeah. And she is so confident that, like, she's cunning and confident and ruthless. And so much so that she's willing to just let him go free if he wants to. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you going to fucking do? You're going to get chased down. You're going to you're going to die. Someone's going to kill you. Yeah. So like her being that like that on top of it and that under like that level of understanding of Ephraim's position to not even like threaten him with imprisonment or anything else. Just say like, yeah, you can go free, whatever, like won't help you and you'll die or you can train these guys. It'll be fun. Do it. I don't know. I, I think it was incredibly, incredibly intelligent on Seppi's part. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a brilliant play and it really shows her truly as, you know, they they say and this is kind of addressed a little bit in previous books, but quiet is a dual word in Nagal, right? It is both silent and, and quiet in the conventional way, but it is also wise. And this is really kind of the the sort of flex of the other side of that name. Mm-hmm. Brilliantly done. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really cool on her part. And then we discover that Volga and Lyria of the Horn Gang, which I loved that they're referred to as the Horn Gang, uh, were abducted by Victra by an agent known as the Figment, who has been mentioned previously. All of a sudden, his stakes and some of the people he cares about are raised again as they are not safe as they were at the end of Iron Gold. And so after throwing his customary fit, he agrees to train the Skuggy in hopes to help Lyria and Volga. So, in that Deadpool from last week, I said that Lyria was dead. Uh, does that mean I have to drink for this? I think what we did is we kept your prediction, right? And we talked about it at the I beginning know. of the episode. So, I don't think that you have to drink yet. Yep. That's fine. So, we'll see how, we'll see how it pans out. But we know that Lyria is alive. There's, your, uh, there's that answer at the very least. <clears throat> and we we know that the figment's real that the figment exists do you remember the reference yeah. to the figment in iron gold uh the reference yes i remember the instance where lyria gets taken okay so the the other reference was when uh ephraim is sitting down i think with the duke of hands and talking about other people that are as skilled for the job and he lists off a couple of names and the first name is the figment ah okay yes so that makes sense just want to bring that up you know kind of reminds that's, me of the, that's pretty cool the list of bounty hunters and you know the empire strikes back and all the bounty hunters that show up that chase him down feels mm-hmm. feels kind of similar in that way yeah yeah that makes sense with that we go into chapter 24 ephraim scoogie this is like a lightning fast chapter of a page and a half and i fucking love this whole thing like it is genius it's a military speech you know it goes it introduces everyone to humiliating freehild the leader the scuggy that we haven't really talked about too much yet to his punchline about spanish surrealism and i'm going to teach you about painting after he goes into all this like robbery shit he's like i'm going to teach you about the best art form that earth ever had and it's just it's all fantastic it feels like we're with ephraim again it feels like he's this real dude but a bit of a different ephraim one that's not quite as numb not one that's chasing the the pills um and one that stands you know just a little bit taller and straighter than before all of that of course is knocked right the fuck down by one of the best punchlines pierce has set up in the series osgard saying that after the speech only half of them speak common i laughed so fucking hard the first time i read it (laughs) even the second time like i listened to it the second time um on the audiobook and i was still broke out in laughter like god i i loved i loved that line this one snuck up on me on this reread actually i was not prepared for it i totally like spaced it and i started reading it and i'm like really did i not end the the like reading here this week why didn't i end it like that would have been a decent spot and then i got into it and i was like oh fuck that's why it's so good <laughs> um but yeah it's uh just ooh, uh, yep mm, nice nice mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great it was great it was so good it's a good little good little section so that chapter 25 virginia oligarchs i really adore virginia's meeting with the silvers here and the way that we're exposed to the machine at work behind the republic those that have been manufacturing all of the goods that are fueling the war 
um, and how they've been able to keep pace with the society's arms and reserves as as the former superpowers and the way that all of this war has been constructed from the silvers and sort of the way that they built a lot of the the stuff if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah i i was really really surprised like pleasantly surprised with how well that meeting went and how she conducted herself through the first half of it (laughs) (laughs) well she was just kind of sitting there like imagining thinking about like she was listening to what britannia ag krieg krieg um talk through like the list of demands and whatever else and she's like it she's like looking at her hair and thinking about how she would use like was it her hair or her jaw to like shape her ice that she would put into her nightly bourbon uh yeah. or, or what have <laughs> you and there's just there's just so many like small things where virginia yes is sitting there and listening politely and she's handling this first half in a very uh political manner but she knows what's going on she knows the 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 silver game that we've kind of come to recognize uh from mostly from quicksilver previously but it it just feels so well done as she's just like sitting there not giving a fucking shit about what she's saying (laughs) it's just brilliant i fucking love virginia so much yeah she's so good she's so good and we we get this this like small thing as well here uh, it's actually not small it's it's significant and obviously it impacted lyria and is very important to kind of the way that things went on mars and the camps and everything else so clearly the cascading effect we felt at the beginning in in iron gold but the way that the reds were cheated out of their labor upon being freed is just so hard to like factor in and deal with and it feels like a political consequence of you know, something simple that, you know, as Virginia herself said, she didn't see coming in, in terms of the contracts that they were just going to report at losses because they had to pay for the robots that were going to go in and replace these people and that they were going to report those as losses to screw the Reds out of money, despite still, you know, making money at just being cheated out of this sort of generational comeuppance by Silvers and Whites writing the contracts just feels so fucking unfair. Yeah, it's definitely definitely fucked. Um, what do you think would happen? Like, how do you think it would have gone if they hadn't been able to run, write the contracts like that? I really think that we would have, instead of like camps, you probably would have seen cities. You would have seen like demand if people had money, right? So like you would have, as opposed to sort of the protectionist assimilation camps, you might've seen smaller, you know, I, I don't think that this is perfect, but if, if it were me writing this and it were going that direction, I would think that you would see kind of like shanty towns and then you'd see some develop more and what have you. You'd see just a slightly higher level of quality of life. Not perfect, not what was promised, but at the very least better than what they had. Yeah, that's fair. You know, not not mm-hmm. revolutionary by any means and definitely still a problem to be addressed. But, you know, yeah, yeah, be, I'd be interested in seeing like a breakdown of how it would have gone otherwise. Because I, I have a feeling that although the Reds get fucked out of this and the the Whites and the Silvers profit immensely, I have a feeling the rest of society also benefits more than they would otherwise. I don't know. Bringing, bringing in that level of, like all the robotics, that level of uh, efficiency, I feel like mining would be a lot slower otherwise and probably more expensive in the, in the long run. So it, it, it'd be... I feel like there's a lot more complexity to it. And I, I don't think that the silvers or the whites are doing anything noble by any sense. 
but I'd be curious to see like a, an actual breakdown of how it would have gone otherwise. Yeah, you know? sure. That makes sense. Be interesting. So as we had kind of discussed uh, Britannia Krieg, Ag Krieg sitting in the middle of the room and having this discussion, a bunch of the other silvers kind of lurking around Quicksilver watching very carefully and kind of observing uh, the fact that like Virginia just holiday and Virginia know exactly what's going on. They're kind of grunting at all of the various talking points to each other and there's like subtle language that they share which is wonderful and she just gestures and you know while virginia's like virginia eats this apple which by the way so there's there's a little bit of a motif and it's you know a a food motif but not a cook motif or a cooking motif um with virginia she in a lot of different scenes in a lot of different moments she has this repeated um kind of tick of sorts motif like i said where she'll like eat an apple while other people are talking to her about things that they feel like she should care about when in fact she actually has sort of the a, a more real answer a more real grasp on the problem than the other people in the room do and has an understanding of of her own fundamental position um this is a direct comparison to when she's in the room with her father nero in golden sun and kind of debating with the rest of the the various um, houses underneath and Darrow and whatnot, not being respected in the room. Very similar mannerism behavior here from her. Um, But Mm -hmm. I, I also love kind of the secret language that she has with holiday with like the grunts and everything. And then like indicates to take the gun from her hand. And it's an anti-tank gun, by the way, that like holiday is just hanging on to. (laughs) She just shoulders it in the middle of the room and shoots straight through this Dawn of Hermes statue that all the silvers are gathered around deafening everyone. It's fucking fabulous. It shows how Virginia governs and, how like Quicksilver seemingly predicted it all because he's very aware and is at the very least on par with her game, you know, being kind of the founder of the sons of Aries. He's a very intelligent kind of thinks like a gold. What do you make of this assembly assemblers uh, assembly of assemblers assembly of silvers and Quicksilver's reaction technology, the whole thing. What do you make of this scene, man? So the silvers as a whole, I feel like they've gotten sort of complicit and not complicit, complacent. complacent complacent. and lazy in their power over the senate because they do they they absolutely have power over the senate and they're kind of just kind of coasting on that um so this was sort of a well-needed jolt like mustang (laughs) ain't taking no shit no shit what's no more i think it was properly received i don't know about well received but i think i think she got her (laughs) point across you know yeah, that's a fair point. Blew up a $94 billion credit statue, uh, which could have fed a, a shit ton of people, but obviously, like, the Silvers weren't doing... You know, <laughs> Quicksilver didn't buy that. You know, he could have given the money out of his own, you know, heart to go help those people, but obviously wasn't. Um, so it's an interesting There's kind more, of statement against that as well. The value of two destroyers. Yeah. Right. Right. It's fucking ridiculous. Or feeding a massive portion of the population for like 48 hours, something like that. Can't remember. Months. Months. 48 months. Jesus Christ. Um, Which is absurd. Four years of. I I don't remember what population they were talking about, but. Yeah. A lot of people. A lot of. A lot of people. And. Just like that, in a chapter filled with power plays, the the final moment of her starting out is just brilliant. I I fucking love it. Her like calling the countdown, 
you know, and, and walking out of the room with the five seconds being like, I can figure this out and I've got half the silvers in the room because half of them are intimidated by me and I don't <laughs> need to worry about that. The other half will either figure it out and get in line or not. And sort of her her power play, her monologue and everything is just fantastic. Love. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, dude, this book. This book is so fucking good. Like, I just have to gush about it more. I really do. Like, I probably, I have mentioned it a couple of times in the last couple of hours. Um, God, I love it. I love this book. I'm so, so excited about this. So thank you for bringing, like, dragging me into this. But yeah, it only took a year. Specifically, be, like, me getting to this point and bringing me to this book. Like, I really, really appreciate you for it. Yeah. So. Yeah, man, I always had a dream of getting to this point. So, you know, this is, mm-hmm. is a good moment in, in every way. Couldn't couldn't agree more. So it's wonderful. With that, we're done for the week. Uh, I guess we're going to talk about something that's in the chapter instead of your predictions um, because you wanted to bring yeah. it up. Uh, but it's time for your predictions. So we'll we'll start off with the first one. Uh, next week, we will begin to start to feed in some of the listener predictions, questions that you guys have asked. I've been keeping them and collecting them. If you have more, please email them to me at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. Send them to me on Instagram. Send them to me on Twitter. If you're in our Discord, either message me directly or put them in the no PJ zone. And I will figure out mostly where they belong. If you have page numbers, shit like that, that's helpful. Uh, yeah, let us know. Let us know. We got some on Reddit, too, mm. randomly. Oh, nice. Yeah. Feel free to awesome. message me there as well. MSI underscore Dandelo. I should really get a different tag, but... Yeah, you should probably get one probably, for our show. Probably for the show. Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's probably a good idea. Uh, so, with that, what mess has the goblin created? So, uh, so this is coming from the last, the last line of this chapter. It says, to Sunhall, or to Sunhall. Looks like the goblin has made a new mess. And I think that mess is, um, I think he's launched a small war vessel with some of his loyal howlers to (laughs) collect the children himself without the help or aid of the Republic. Oh, wow. Like, I I think he's taking shit into his own hands and he's just going to go. Okay. So. Okay. They're going to, they're going to have to try to stop him. I like that. I like that. Uh, so next prediction, do Pax and Electra help Ephraim train the squigglies in your own words? <laughs> no, what a stupid question. Like, why would you ask that? They're the most important children in the galaxy. And if they die or get hurt, Ephraim is fucked. So no way they help. <clears throat> no. Okay, cool. Uh, they I, might help. I don't, I don't think Ephraim will ask them to help. Okay. They might jump in on their own but I, I don't think Ephraim will ask them to help okay all right i dig that so again in your own words <laughs> does miss horsey lady receive any backlash from shooting an aircraft gun through a multi-billion credit art piece i think they'll just kind of let it go <laughs> quicksilver will probably make like a snide joke about it at some point but um no i don't think she'll get any backlash other than that all right miss horsey lady will walk or Clomp. <laughs> Miss Horsey Lady's gonna walk. She'll she'll trot. Trot. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. All right. Sweet. Well, that is all of the predictions for this week going into next week. Um next week we are going to be covering chapters twenty-six through thirty-one. Twenty-six through thirty-one. So it's through page two sixty-seven. Uh very 
very excited for next week. 267 in the hardcover specifically. Hardcovers, yes. Yeah. Uh, so solid, solid little read. 62 pages should be great. Very excited for mm-hmm. next week. Very excited for the rest of this book, to be honest. So we so, get to record this in three days, three days, three days to read those 62 pages. You can do it. Yeah, I can do it. It's fine. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep our show's lights on. Check out the links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, websites, drinks, socials, all in one convenient spot. Yeah, and as PJ said, make sure that you check out the Patreon. We have a ton of new content coming out there um, each and every week. We do devil's cuts occasionally of our episodes on the main feed here with bonus content uh, where either we talk about things beforehand or stuff that we had to cut just for time and kind of simplicity's sake. Um, Sometimes some extra funny stuff and soon... A bonus book an entire bonus book series uh the very first book that we covered so it should be should be a good time for yeah. our patrons uh above and beyond that we've got the three other shows your show pj symposium that we talked at the top hard pan which we mentioned in the middle and speculative knowledge which we didn't talk about at all but <laughs> those are the three <laughs> shows that that we've got in addition here mm-hmm Beyond that, we also want to take a second to thank our new patron mixologist, Adam Moldy. Thank you so much, Adam, for joining us in the patron. We hope that you appreciate all of our live shows and everything like that. Very excited to have you. Absolutely. Uh, It means the world to us. Any support that we get, be it just listeners specifically like you, because you're listening to this, so you're a listener. Just the the fact that you're listening to us and downloading our show really helps us out. Um, what helps us out even more is uh, consistency and reviews. So if you're if you're into that, give it a shot. If you can, uh, but, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love you. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, love you long time. Uh, love you long time. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.